This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Some cars are comfy on the inside but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. You know what I want. <laughs> I want a coffee. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Extra Weekly Podcast. I'm Ro Sampson Folk. And today, a bit of a spotlight on a piece that I really enjoyed, that I thought was probably the most informative thing I've seen or read about Marc Gasol, considering he's received so much attention lately. And it was written by a guy who does a lot of writing for Complex and for Raptors Republic. You know him well, you've probably read his stuff. He's been on the podcast before. Vivek Jacob, a man who when we first met at the OVO Center to take in a Raptors practice, treated me with the kindness that is typically reserved for good friends. Vivek, how are you doing today, man? Oh, I'm good, man. Thank you for the extremely kind intro. Uh, but yeah, man, it was good to see you the one time. I know uh, you're away from us more so uh, in these COVID times, but uh, yeah, it was definitely nice to meet you for the first time. And of course, it's all love for RR, man. Yeah, that's uh, that's the popular place to be, I guess. A lot of people come up through there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been a nice pipeline of Raptors media talent that's emerged from there. So hopefully we can keep it going. And you've definitely kept up uh, the standard as well. So kudos to you. Thanks, man. That's great to hear. But we're here to talk about the guy, Marcus Saul. And the first thing <laughs> I want to ask you because. Oftentimes, there is a disconnect with players like a Lowry or a Marcus Saul that typically have sort of cerebral types of games. You know, everyone recognizes LeBron as having a, a genius IQ for, for on the court, but he's got this insane body to back it up and to allow him to kind of manifest how he wants to play basketball with that brain. Guys like Kyle and Mark a lot of times come in underrated. So... Let's pretend I'm a person who doesn't like or understand what Gasol brings to the court. And then what would you tell me to try and change my mind? I would say that all the fancy stuff that you like seeing is a byproduct of what the Marcus Gasols and the Kyle Lowry's do on the court. So when you see Norman Powell getting out on the break and getting a nice fast break dunk that gets you excited, or you see Pascal Siakam breaking out, um, a lot of that starts with Kyle Lowry and Marcus all sort of, you know, uh, orchestrating the defense and making sure everyone's in the right position and allowing those guys to sort of accentuate their best skills. And then even on the offensive end of the floor, uh, the way Marcus all and Kyle Lowry can 
create opportunities for others, the, you know, those little head faints, you know, it's definitely more for the purists that will notice those little things where they're able to open up space where there normally wouldn't be. But the end product that gets you excited, that starts because of guys as smart as Kyle Lowry and Marcus Hull. That's what I would say. So when we're talking about, as you bring up, the head feints and how Marcus Hall is able to create offense, I know I'm taking a bit of a bigger step with this, but how he's able to create offense and how that stretches out to the Raptors' corner offense, the split action stuff they run with them. As far as the Mm -hmm. Raptors and how they run their offense and how much of that goes through Gasol, he's probably fourth on the, the list of creators, let's say. It's Pascal, Kyle, Fred all with usage rates above him. And he, he's more of a guy kind of, he's tertiary in that in that sense. But they have that corner offense and they like to introduce it. Is there any type of pet play you have out of there? What do you like to see when they finally give Gasol the ball in the post and ask him to create and ask guys to cut around him? I think I, 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 I do like when there is sort of some screening action from the weak side that is able to get guys open three-point looks. Because he's just so good at finding them, whether it's all the way to the opposite corner or even up top. I think that's where I like to play finishing. And a lot of times Nick Nurse does talk about how, you know, just because the ball ends up in the post doesn't mean uh, they're trying to run a post up or they're trying to finish with the two at the basket. It's, you know, to get a a clean look. And so whether, you know, now uh, being skinny and being, being back to, uh, a level where he feels like he has more energy is able to get him an easy two and uh, bully whoever's uh, at the rim with him or whether he's able to kick it out for a clean look. I think that's the way I like to see the play finish. Um, and I think that that's that, that's the way he likes to finish the play too. I think he's always looking for his teammates first. Um, when he's out on the perimeter, I will say I would like him to shoot more. I, I want to see, you know, especially mm-hmm. in these playoffs uh, against... Uh, You'll be more tested against the the tough matchups where, you know, you get the Bostons or the Phillies or the Miamis or the Milwaukee's. Uh, those are the matchups where when he's open uh, at the three-point line, he's got to be thinking shot first, in my opinion. I want to see him get, you know, uh, eight threes up per game in a series against those guys because I, I, I think that would uh, really help the Raptors' offense. Because let's face it, he's a really good three-point shooter. He's worked on that shot. Um and beyond that, you know, I think the other area I would say is when you when I think of a team like Miami, as unlikely as it is that the Raptors would face them, uh, they play, you know, you, you would say just as much zone as the Raptors, if not more. And other teams, if they do go to a zone, uh, we saw because of injuries that game in Miami where the Raptors sort of struggled with the zone because they just didn't have anyone to be a genuine creator out of those elbow positions, you know, right at the nail. And so uh, I think Marcus all, you know, would eat them up in those situations. So that's another area where I feel like uh, he can be such a boon to the Raptors offense, just picking apart defenses. Yeah. I think you hit on a couple points that are really important. The first, or let's start with the second one you made, which is Gasol shooting from three. And I think we're all kind of looking towards, like, yes, a series against Miami or Philly or Boston would be challenging, Boston perhaps the most, but Milwaukee is the the end point, not the true end point, but the end point of the Eastern Conference. And if they are going to play that dominating drop defense, 
one of the most natural counters the Raptors have on the squad is Marcus Gasol firing from deep and hitting hopefully between you know 36, 42 percent and doing it at a prolific rate. I think that's one of the ways they can do it because they don't, even though Pascal has tried to implement some of it, they don't have that natural mid-range assassin, a guy who's going to snake into the middle of the floor after a pick and roll and kind of punish that drop defense. So that's important. And I like that you brought up the the weak side action because and talked about having a tough job with Miami because when I was doing my research, when I was looking at every possession that Pascal played against Giannis, Ben Simmons, Jonathan Isaac, and Bam Adebayo, when he played Bam Adebayo, the only time he ever had any success, because he was 0 for 5 with two turnovers, hardly touched the ball in the second half, but it was that weak side action where they had a back screen for Siakam going to the rim, and he drew free throws against Bam. But they have a really good action play, or option play, I should say, for Siakam where he can uh, split to the corner or go to the bucket. And that was the only way he could skirt Bam, and that's born out of Gasol's length and passing chops and that they can just kind of set him up on the strong side of the floor. And, yeah, I like that you brought that up. That was uh, It's a very, very important facet of their offense, especially when we get into the playoffs and you have to be versatile. But the piece you wrote, why the new and improved Marcus Gasol should have the NBA afraid, which is something we've kind of touched on already, but... There were a lot of interesting NBA stories coming out of the league. What made you zero in on Marcus All? Well, uh, to be completely honest with you, this was a story that's uh, been a long time coming. Uh, I had originally had the story ready uh, the week of December 10th, I want to say. It, it was the week that Kawhi came to Toronto, came back, made his return. And it was supposed to come out on the Friday for Yahoo Sports, but I got laid off on the Wednesday, so that didn't happen. <laughs> Man. <laughs> so then I just kind of hung on to the quotes and the, the storyline and this and that. Um, and then it was, and then obviously he had the injury issues. And then, you know, I was talking to Complex, I, like I kind of rebuilt the story again and uh, it was ready to go the week he had come back from injury. Uh, but obviously then the NBA shut down after uh, the Utah game. So that, that was the week it was supposed to come out again. So at that, all, at that point, I was kind of like, I don't know if this is like a sign that maybe this story isn't supposed to be out there. Maybe it really sucks. Uh, and I just need to keep it to myself. But yeah, eventually, uh, again, with the NBA coming back, that's why I didn't even want to wait for any games to be played. I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I'm going to rework the story just to make it more current with these COVID times. And yeah, thankfully, most of it, you know, still sort of fit in. Just had to make a few changes here and there. And yeah, I'm just relieved I was finally able to get the story out. Yeah, it certainly doesn't seem dated. It seems very appropriate for the time that it came out. So as far as you being able to rework and adapt, I think uh, you did a hell of a job. And I'm, I'm guessing... If I had to guess where it was reworked from, did it initially start with his two-point proficiency? Is Was that the initial punch of the article and then had to be reworked into different things? Or where did it start? <laughs> um, actually, no, I kind of had a, a, a similar start. Well, I had the sort of Memphis storyline right, right at the top. Um, I, had, I had opened with him breaking his foot 
back in 2016 and then sort of got into the stuff about his diet and whatnot um and yeah again it it was still under the umbrella of sort of him being adaptable which is i guess why it maybe doesn't look dated now but yeah uh, i i guess the the recent uh sort of timeline helped add to the storyline and so yeah, the focus initially, uh, the open initially was his broken foot. Uh, and then, you know, the two-point stuff is, is sort of came after that. But, you know, they, that, that was really interesting, too, because uh, I remember him being sort of reluctant to share any real details about it because, you know, uh, he was asked, you know, how he's been working on it. And he was like, yeah, uh, brought some... Uh, people from back, back home uh, and this and that. And then when he was pressed on like who those people are and he was just like people from Spain. <laughs> so uh, obviously he didn't want to reveal too much about who was helping him. But uh, yeah, I, I do think it's sort of, it's sort of a testament also to just the general way in which uh, European players are sort of raised. Like it's very sort of, technique based first uh as opposed to the aau style uh in the states where it's athleticism first and so i think that allows uh maybe for the european players to catch up on a you know something like improving your shot a bit quicker whereas like okay i need to work on this boom uh, you know make these adjustments i got it i need to get a three-point shot boom i got it uh so uh i find that part of it fascinating this okay this actually brings up I have had this question in the bank for somebody who asked him about it or got, you know, a bit of the inside track on Gasol since he struggled. And so when I was watching FIBA, and and you mentioned Gasol bringing in that team to address his poor shooting shooting from two-point land, and I had a theory for some time. I always thought FIBA basketball was a lot more physical in the paint, but a lot less vertical and I thought that Mark had gotten accustomed to the physical and grounded paint defense of FIBA and then had to get used to the kind of vertical type of paint defense in the NBA. Do you know what I mean? Like there's those That's big bruisers that are European centers and they play that kind of plodding. Who, who is the guy? Um, Pakovic uh, yeah. for the Timberwolves yeah. way back when. This very physical grounded post defense. And then you go to the NBA and it's somebody who you might be able to get under the basket or close to it, but it's Miles Turner. He's way longer. He can. He's a bit springier. So the finishing seems a lot different, the timing of how the post plays. Did he mention anything about that? Or did anything like that come up? Um, I had spoken to him sort of defensively because I wanted to get his take on the Nick Nurse quote I had in there about him stomaching people. And so I I guess the the one thing uh, that would sort of tie in was he talked about, you know, uh, at the end of the day, you have to use sort of the unique advantages you have as an individual. And so he he was like, yeah, he knows how to use his body to get players out of position. He's like, he's not going to be able to, you know, contest someone at the rim. He's not going to have the verticality to get up and block a shot. So he knows he has to do the work beforehand to make the shot just as difficult as possible. Uh, And so for him, that process is, okay, how do I get someone out of position? How do I get uh, someone maybe a bit further away from the basket than they're accustomed to? That type of thing. And so 
uh, I think with him uh, on offense, uh, in terms of the two-point shot, I, I, w- I would say, you know, it again comes down to the work he's doing beforehand. So maybe, uh, you know, what he's doing to get a defender off him just that little bit extra so that he can get that shot off without, you know, the verticality to sort of rise up and over. And so let's translate that to today, even though this story was apparently a very long time coming and a credit to you for finishing it and keeping the quotes for however long and being able to rework it to the point where it came out, I think a week now, a week ago now. And it was, I think very well received. I saw a lot of people enjoyed it, myself included, but we saw him turn the corner and try and dunk it the first time he touched the ball when he got back. What's your opinion been <laughs> of the the version of Gasol that people should be afraid of? Uh, yeah, I think, again, when, when you look at the Raptors as a whole, they're not a team that really gets to the line. Uh, like Kyle Lowry's been getting to the line more often this season, but I wouldn't say Siakam's someone that you know, consistently is able to get to the line. I wouldn't say that Fred Van Vliet is able to do that. So, uh, you know, those possessions where if he's able to go hard, uh, I think is just going to force bigs to maybe uh, contest the shot harder as well. And maybe that leads to some foul trouble. And again, you know, he goes to the line, that's an 80% shot. So uh, I think that's an area where maybe he can get the Raptors a few extra trips to the line, get the bigs in foul trouble. Um, that's the difference I think it can make there. Uh, other than that, you know, uh, I think, you know, to your point earlier about maybe the disconnect with players like a Mark and a Kyle because of how smart they are, you know, maybe it is just a bit more ever present in the minds of defenders when they know that they could be on, you know, the, the wrong end of a highlight. And so, if Marcus All is going there with the intent of dunking, uh, maybe that does sort of uh, make them pay that extra attention, uh, and, and maybe that does open it, it open things up even more for him to pick apart the defense and uh, find some open shooters. Yeah, Marcus All the rim runner would be a hell of a twist for this season. <laughs> You'd see Dallas immediately is trying to trade for him, so they get another rim runner for Luca. They're like, we need we need this guy. He's a monster going to the rim. I oh yeah, I like that you brought up Kyle Lowry. Not that we should talk about it at length, but Kyle Lowry, as far as getting into the paint and free throw line this year, just because it's something I'm interested in. And as you said, he's been much much better at it this year. It seemed like for a long time that aspect of his game was tailing off, and which is mm-hmm. natural for point guards who are aging. And then all of a yeah. sudden, Kyle Lowry decided, like, oh, I'm that dude again. I'm going to go to the line however many times a game. I'm going to finish, like, 67% at the rim. I'm going to get where I want. I'm going to be shifty. I'm going to throw my butt everywhere. What What have you seen from that, from Kyle? Because I, I know you're a Kyle appreciator as well. So when you see Kyle completely switch the progression of his his driving game, what do you see that yeah. stands out as far as from last year to this year or the last couple of years to this year? I think he's got the quickness back in terms of, you know, being able to shift one way, then go the other. I think like watching more of last season, it was definitely more of, I got to get my body in front and then I got to keep it in front. Uh, now it seems like he's genuinely beating guys 
to the rim. Uh, I, I think that's probably the biggest thing I've noticed. But I think as a whole, I would say when I look at Kyle Lowry and even some other point guards, I feel like we do need to reevaluate what we now consider uh, an aging point guard or just an aging athlete because you look across the board, not just in basketball, uh, athletes are getting older and still able to perform at a really, really high level. And I think a lot of that is down to sports science and the way athletes know how to take care of their bodies. So the ones who do invest the time uh, and the money to do everything they can possibly do uh, are, are reaping the rewards. And I think Kyle Lowry is one of them. And so that's why even long-term, when I think about Kyle, I do think he can keep it at this level for maybe another two or three years. And so I do think it's important to keep him around instead of just saying, oh, this is a 34-year-old, you know. And, you know, I think for the last two or three years, we've been saying, oh, okay, you know, maybe that was the best we're going to see of Kyle Lowry. And so uh, I've, I've sort of gone away from that sort of line of thinking. Yeah, I think so too. I think even there's a line of, even just the way that the NBA, I'm sure internally it's changing rapidly, but from the outside as far as commentators, how we see athleticism I think is still quite antiquated. And I think that Lowry, after tearing his ACL in college and then not even getting surgery done on it and just being able to use balance, control, and strength to kind of sub in for what isn't a level of quickness like he doesn't have the level of quickness that a lot of point guards have and you see guys like cj mccollum luka Doncic. it's the control and balance that is so important that they're able to get where they want to on the floor and the nba it seems like those types of athletes typically aren't overrated it seems like they're typically you know, they're not recognized as that being important. Paul Pierce, another guy. I know it's fun to make fun of Paul Pierce, but he did have great balance in his career, and he could get to a lot of spots on the floor. What do you think about that paradigm shift? Is that something we'll see more of, or do you think it'll be more in the vein of crazier and crazier Zion-esque athletes coming out and just being world-enders in that type of way? I think that's really interesting. I, I, I think... You know, there's always going to be the exceptions that come along, the, those generational talents like the Zions and the Giannis's. Uh, but on the whole, I think we'll see. Um, I think, I think a Bradley Beal type athleticism is uh, what, what we might see more of. And so, just like very gifted athletes um, that take care of their bodies and. Uh, you know, they're agile so they can get to any spot on the floor. Um, they've got the smoothness to finish because that's one thing. It's almost like th there's certain guys that are almost too bulky. And so they struggle to finish at the rim um, or they struggle off their dribble. I think Stanley we're going to Johnson. Guy. Yeah. It, yeah. There you go. That's a prime example. Um, so now um, I, I, I think we'd see more of those types of guys where I, I don't know if like a refined sort of athleticism is a good way to call it. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely think there, there's a smoothness to those types of guys. And I think that's what uh, most people will tend towards. But obviously if you've got the, those rare exceptions with the physical gifts that, uh, you know, a LeBron has or a Giannis or a Zion, then I think you just maximize that as much as you can. 
Yeah, no, I think refined athleticism is a good term. And then anybody listening can just throw all the attributes under that that they want. We can just use it as an umbrella term. But as you said, smoothness, smooth weight transfer, that kind of stuff from getting from point A to point B. I think defenses respond well to explosion a lot of the time because explosion is I you can identify that right away. But smooth mm-hmm. transfers of weight and of your dribble package, whatever combo you're doing, are really hard to keep up with. But I, I do like that you brought up Bradley Beal because he is super smooth. And he's one of the most fun players to watch take the bump in air. He's really yeah. good at it. So is guys like John Morant. But one last question before I let you get out of here. And it's a bit of a selfish one. Before, your closing line was... Question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, I, no, so I, I just wanted that. The other thing that factors into that, it's the fact that, you know, I think there is added value for guys who, you know, almost the bigger the, the bigger you uh, the athlete, the more they're able to handle the ball in the perimeter and make moves, the more valuable they are, right? And I think that's going to contribute as well to those bigger athletes saying, hey, you know, I got to like, again, refine my game and uh, have creative ways of getting to the basket and whatnot. And I think uh, Siakam is a prime example of that too, right? When you look at mm-hmm. uh, him adding strength to his game, you want him to do it to the point where you know he's able to hold his own when he's uh, taking those hits underneath the basket, but you also don't want him to get too bulky where he, he's taking away from his main strengths of you know the shiftiness, the overall athletic, uh, that sort of that speed that he has to his game. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point because Siakam, he's seen a, and you know this, he's seen a bit of a dip in his proficiency at the rim this year. And it probably is that, is he was very accustomed to using speed to get to the rim and then finesse finishes. And this year there's been more isolation play, more more post-up play, and he's not attacking off the ball as often, not as often on cuts or in the open four with transition. So we see him strength is a little bit more important in his finishing. So we see a dip in his finishing numbers this year. And it's just that constantly shifting idea of what you're supposed to be, what your body is supposed to be, that I think made your Marcus Allpiece extremely interesting to read and how he's responded and stayed relevant in the league until he's at this age now. And yeah, Pascal, whether he's the nominal three and OG is the nominal four or whether they fit the archetypes of that position, I think is one of the most interesting questions for the Raptors going forward. But if you want to go on to the final question, we can do so. Yeah, I am ready now. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So your closing line for your piece, which was great, is, quote, it's Gasol's vintage move. Why panic when you can adapt? And we got very close to touching on it towards the start of the podcast when you're saying why this piece got derailed. But I'm going to ask you to extrapolate that for another topic. Panic and adapting seem to be two pillars of journalism and sports journalism. What do you think of the current climate we work in? And what do you hope changes? Oh, man, that's there's a lot of different uh, sort of subtopics that fall within that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in terms of the changes that, that need to happen, but... Uh, you know, I think in terms of panic versus adapt, you know, I think there's a lot of people just committing to these, you know, the, the, these tech investments and they're just looking at the raw numbers and, 
uh, clickbait base basically. And I think that's hurting good journalism. I think that's hurting, uh, getting quality information out there. Obviously, you know, didn't there other places that, that are committed to it, but they seem to be more and more the exception than the norm. And I think we need to strive to make that the norm. Um, and, you know, uh, I know there, there's a lot of valid criticism that the athletic gets in terms of their diversity, but in terms of the product that they provide, I think that's a, that's a really good model that they have going. Um, yeah, again, when, when we talk about the subtopics in terms of changes we want to see, obviously there's huge changes that need to happen, uh, as far as diversity in the media. Uh, there's, you know, the numbers have been out there for a while now. And so I think that's a big thing that needs to change. The more representation you have, uh, the better you're able to, you know, understand someone's story because you're going to get perspectives that, you know, if you're constantly just looking through the same lens, uh, you're just not going to get. And so I think that's a really important thing that all uh, media companies need to consider uh, strongly and just make, uh, you know, just part of their uh, sort of mandate in terms of how they want to do their work. No, I don't want to get that's... too deep into the weeds Sorry. here. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. I think you, you hit most of the, the right notes, especially in regards to the things that I can talk about as far as how I view journalism and how clickbait journalism is undercutting a lot of what's valuable. The monetary system of the internet makes it tough, and especially since people are so accustomed to getting everything for free, trying to tease money out of people's pockets for things that are important is tough. And then as far as the diversity, you've got a much better opinion on that than I do, especially since you can actually speak to experience with that. Not that not only because of your you know your position as a diverse group in media, but that you've spent more time in media than me as well. So I think I feel like you hit all the notes on that question for me without get me asking you to really get into it and to just bear your heart for, for everybody out on the <laughs> podcast. But I think that that brings us to the closing point. So Vivek, the the floor is yours, man. Tell the people what to be reading of yours, what to be watching of yours, what should they be doing? Well, um, I'm going to be trying to do the best I can with uh, my makeshift sort of uh, work situation till I get my laptop back. Uh, but if, you know, any work that I do, you'll be able to find on Complex Canada, you'll be able to find on Raptors Republic. And yeah, just looking to ramp up here ahead of playoff time and hopefully just do a whole bunch of work and... Uh, help give the fans what they want, which is a lot of content, a lot of Raptors content. Hitting all the notes once again. Vivek Jacob, thank you for coming on, man. Thanks so much for having me, Samson. And you, listener, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. I believe Vivek's Twitter is Vivek M. Jacob, and you can follow him there and you can stay up to date with what he's going on. Perhaps you might even see a big V joke or two. But for us, that's it. We're out of here. Hope you enjoyed listening, whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night. Have a blessed day and goodbye. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 
99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. The Medicare annual election period deadline is almost here. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who started their search for coverage at myhealthpolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online, so he started at myhealthpolicy.com. I took my time and found the coverage I was looking for. And done. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plans, so I called myhealthpolicy.com and done. Switched to a better plan. And Michael. I met with a local licensed insurance agent face-to-face. And done. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to compare top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. At American Public University, we believe higher education is not one-size-fits-all. That's why we offer 200 modern programs that build on your knowledge and fit your schedule. Because we believe universities should adapt to the needs of students, not the other way around. American Public University, within reach, without limits. Online classes start every month. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com.